I can't get that excited about jeans. I, I think you're looking for a reaction you're never going to get in also, insofar as when we discuss jeans. Quinn, none of this stuff is usable because you don't have your headphones in on the iPad and I'm just talking into the microphone with you. Sorry about that. <laughs> Dear readers, if you're just tuning in or if this is new, okay, everybody, Quinn, Quinn and I have been in meetings. We've started recording at 9.45. It is 2.15. We've had a 20-minute break. We've had two important meetings about the pod, and we recorded one episode. We're exhausted. I have COVID still. This is exhausting. I took a COVID test during my time with you. It's been a day. Do you think that when we say we had meetings that the Dear Readers picture us sitting across a desk from a a kid desk? We're at a kid desk and Ko was on the other side. And he's like, tell more scary stories. (laughs) And we're like, "Uh, okay. So tonight I'm going to a bar called The Jewel Thief where someone else is buying my drinks. I think the drinks are $25. Never even heard of a cocktail costing that much. And they're all named after different heists, I think. Or at least the menu looked like each is based on a different heist. And well, the menu has a pink, pa- it's Pink Panther themed, which Quinn covered, which is so fun. I knew so much because of what you covered. I mean, I'm just so excited because I feel like the vibe there is going to be like, I feel like I should wear leather. I don't think I own leather, but I feel like you I should a leather wear leather. Jacket. I have a leather. You have jacket? like a leather, no, I don't. like with. Did you have like with like a leather um, accents? Nope. <laughs> no, I have a suede jacket. I could wear suede. Is that cool enough? We all know that you're going to wear a bold lip. Do oh, you have eyelash I... extensions right now? Yeah, but they're kind of all falling out. I keep getting um, giant ones just stuck to my cheek when I wake up. I look a mess. Is the truth. <laughs> And I'm really sweaty right now. So I'm really like, I look and feel a mess. I'm going to have like two seconds to shower and then go to the city and be like suitable to go into a really cool Manhattan bar and have a $25 cocktail. It's so funny how the turns have tabled. You get COVID and I get cocktails. When are we going to be thoroughly in sync? By the way, dear readers, you're listening to Truly. Darkly. Creepy. I'm Gwendolyn Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. We do this because we love we you can. and we love each other and we love we do. the oceans. We do. Protect the ocean. Um, by the way, drinking out of a straw, <laughs> so fun. You might think, what a weird segue after loving the ocean. <laughs> I went to <laughs> She'll a never pharmacy. Get a straw, though. We don't love no, it that I, much. We love it no. second to straws. No, I got a reusable straw. I I don't, for a long time, I just never got straws because you know what? It wasn't good for the environment. Although, I mean, it isn't good for the environment. And that we all remember that video of that turtle. That was traumatizing. But, but why was that turtle using such a long straw to shoot cocaine? <laughs> That's what I'd like to know. And why didn't anyone get him the help he needed 
for that addiction. I'm just amazed that the straw was really in his head and he was still alive. It's actually really sad. Don't don't Google this if you haven't seen it. It's horrifying. It's I can't. I like when you say it, I like think of it because it's whatever. Not whatever. It's really traumatizing. Anyway, so I was I had a cold before I got covid because you know what? When it rains, it pours. April showers bring me flowers. And um, I bought myself a silicone straw. And I got to tell you guys, drinking out of a straw, that's so fun. Yeah, we have the metal ones. And I, I like the metal ones because they also make me feel like fancy, like whatever drink I'm having. I like that vibe. But it makes too much noise for our little potty cast. Oh, yeah, I can't have them in here. Ding, Forget ding, about ding, it. Ding, 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 ding. That's what it sounds like. Ding, 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 ding. April peepees bring May creepies. <laughs> right? Um, for Because we're always late for our Patreon. Speaking of which, join Patreon. And we have some Patreon people to thank. Yeah, let's do it. Um, let's go ahead and thank... Listen, it's a Michelle, but I want to be clear. It is spelled so much cooler than uh, you're picturing. It's like Miss Shell. M-I-S-S? No, M-I-S-C-H-E-L-E. Isn't that Michelle. a cool way to spell it? <gasps> Michelle, it's almost like you're mischievous. Michelle has M-I-S-E-H-E-L-L-E. Just one L. Now you're Damn going it. to hell because you accidentally misspelled our friend Michelle. Michelle. <laughs> how that about, was good, actually. How about Sammy? <gasps> Sammy, Sammy, are you Samantha or not? I had you as an American girl doll when I was a kid. Sammy, Sammy, you don't give a dammy, and that's what we love about you. Sammy. Aaron. <gasps> Aaron, Aaron, Aaron you're is so caring Claren. about us. Aaron is sharing that she loves us. And here's the thing, Aaron, do I Darren? Yes, I do. I love you. Aaron. Quinn, do we do all Patreon or just five and seven dollars? Just five. Or and, just seven. Just five and seven. Should we change it to just seven dollar purchase? Um probably, but here's the thing. <laughs> if we did that, we would there'd be a lot less singing. And I think um doing the what's people the world want singing? without that. What the world? Needs now is Harry is less and Quinn singing to shut up, <laughs> to shut the fuck up and get the true crime. <laughs> get to the fucking story. Shut your mouth, mouth. Quit singing at us. us. <laughs> it is now time for a word from our sponsors. Ooh, that was so pretty. Oh, hey there. I'm Holly. And I'm Sarah. And we're the hosts of Cover Your Eyes Podcast. We revisit the 80s and 90s movies of our childhoods and wonder, why the hell were we allowed to watch this? Is it too late now? Is the damage done? Join us and find out as we laugh our way through the trauma and take a lighthearted look at how these movies shaped our views on society, relationships, and sex. Open your minds and cover your eyes. Every Tuesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> hey, we're back. Hey, did wow. you miss us? Should I be singing all of our words from sponsors? Probably. Look who's behind me right now. Bob Dylan. Bobby D. 
Bobby D is in the house. You know, I went to that concert um, and I went with a friend. <laughs> Not this and... one. This was in the 1960s. <laughs> you know, I time traveled and went to that concert. I the cl- went to a Bob Dylan concert and we were at Madison Square Garden and we were um, in the front area, but not the front row, obviously. And we were very um, misbehaved, drunk college gals. And we pushed our way up to the front once everyone was standing. We were like, fuck it. Let's like see what if we get kicked out. We probably won't, but let's get really close. And we got really, really close. We were kind of butted in front of the people that were in the front row. Um, and <laughs> that was a risk. Did. That was a risk. And we were like dancing and so happy and then I felt tap 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 for my friend and she was laughing so hard and she did one of those like throw your head to the side gestures and guess who we had like pushed in front of who Tim Robbins and Jack Black (laughs) (laughs) and we're just dancing that's why nobody tapped us because first of all I can't believe you've never told me this story because first of all Tim Robbins isn't gonna tap us he can see well over us. Like we, he probably didn't even notice like a mouse in front of, scurried in front of him. We're like at his knees. Jack Black is like apparently lovely because he was just dancing and having an excellent time and behaving exactly as you would want. And they were with Joan Cusack, who was the only <gasps> one of the three that looked actually angry that we were there and was a little eye-rolly about us. She's a Chicago lady. Which Love is her. fair. And we deserved that reaction. And then my friend was so drunk, she just wouldn't stop talking to Jack Black and joking with him. And he seemed like he was, like, into being joked with and it was all fine. But then when the show ended, she, to me, was like, I think we're friends with them. We should go with them. And then their bodyguards, like, very quickly made a bubble around them and were like, you're not friends with them. You're not going with them. (laughs) Wait, Quinn. I cannot believe this story is the first ever because we've talked about our love for Bob Dylan many fucking times. Well, it's not really a Bob Dylan story. You know what I mean? Uh, well, I saw. OK, so I guess this is how Quinn and I are different, but the same. We're the same, but different. Great Sesame Street book. We're the same. I went to Bob Dylan when I was in college and in Indiana. You were in New York. So the same, the different. It was the worst concert I've ever been to. It was so bad. He was off center like not even in the spotlight i've never seen so many people try to have fun like people were trying to dance and have a good time it was not a good time it was bad oh he brought his a game to madison square well i maybe in bloomington indiana he didn't which is unfair that seems unfair and i'm sorry you had that experience but um it's okay you know what it's okay because i just went to go fix my glasses because i thought they were slipping and since this isn't a visual medium i'll tell you i'm not wearing glasses is that what you were just doing just now i saw you i thought you were miming something i didn't know what it was no i went to go fix my glasses because i thought they were slipping and actually they're not on my face you see me do this that's so weird to me that like someone sees something i do often when you do that you think you're invisible well, I do it automatically, so I can't imagine anyone seeing me do it. To do something without awareness and have other people notice it before you yourself realize it is a crazy thing. You know, I think Matt called me out once on saying that I do the double pick, which I do. I do this. <laughs> and you do do that. I do a double pick. I pick both nostrils at the exact same time so that no one gets jealous. And I did get called out on that. And I think I had a similar thought. I was like, oh, I'm... I, I can be seen when I'm doing that. 
This is not a private space. It, what's so nice is that picking your nose is such an intimate thing. What I love about our friendship, Quinn, is you do it freely in front of me like it's no thing. And I really appreciate that. I don't want to insult you or this friendship, but I'm pretty sure I pick you do my that nose in front of everyone. Yeah. pretty publicly. I went on a date with a guy. No, I shouldn't say that. I have a friend who I have gone on a date with. Mm-hmm. Didn't go well. Mm-hmm. But I have a friend who picks his nose and eats it in front of people. I don't think you should be friends with that person anymore. I'm not. There's I'm not. only room for not one person. There's room for one person in your life to do that. And I think it should be Koa. Listen, any kid under... Six. Seven. I was going to say six, I think seven, just to give them a year to get used to it. Okay. When I was a kid, oh, this is so embarrassing. Okay, I'll tell it and then we'll go to stories. When I was a kid, I picked my nose and ate it and I was sneaky about it. Oh, God, I hate telling this story. We might have to cut it. I'm embarrassed. And what I would do is I would drop my pencil under my desk and I'd go down to get the pencil and I'd pick my nose and eat it. It's so gross. It makes I me like not... you. It makes me like you better than I liked you 10 minutes ago. <laughs> I, I did, We're in a better I place did, now. I didn't like doing it, but that was how sneaky I was. I'm proud of you. I'd like, I'd like drop my pencil, make a big deal. Oh, to go get my pencil. Really dig in there and get it. I really like it. Pop it in the mouth. Um, <laughs> I'm going to throw st- up. I can't talk about it. I'm going to tell you a story now. Okay. Hold on. Let me drink some water. So jealous. I don't think I have any. Oh, fuck it. All right. Matt. <laughs> Please. Um, this story is the story of Travis. And I got my information from Wikipedia, the Hartford Court, NBC, New York Times by Michael Wilson, and by Michael Paterniti. Sandra Harold does not consider Travis her chimpanzee a pet, though. She says he's part of the family. He was mm-hmm. born in Missouri, in Festus, on October 21st, 1995. He was born at this compound owned by Mike and Connie Braun Casey, the Missouri Chimpanzee Sanctuary. Okay? This is giving me Tiger King like, Tiger King vibes. Totally. Sandra and Jerome Harold go and buy Travis the Chimpanzee for $50,000 from a breeder after he was taken from his mom at three days old. Ooh. Bad vibes all around. I'm not aware of the animal kingdom, but I do know that some animals shall not be our pets. Well, Travis shall, and they name him Travis Tritt after the country singer, which is actually kind of ironic because he's going to be T-R-O-U-B-L-E. <sighs> One of Travis Tritt's songs. Oh, Travis. I don't know Travis Tritt, so that's good to know. Yeah, just so you know. Travis was super socialized, right, to being around people really quickly because he's just a baby and he starts hanging out in their home and he's being raised there in North in the North Stamford section of Stamford, Connecticut. He will go with them when they go grocery shopping and go to work. They have a towing Ugh. company and they These people love attention and I uh, they love attention. Nobody's bringing a chimpanzee around who doesn't want to be stopped. They also love Travis, to. is their story. They have him go with them to work at their towing company, and he poses for photos there, um, like, in a tow truck with a seatbelt on. 
He wears t-shirts sometimes. It's pretty cute for obvious reasons. And people in town are like, we love Travis. He's like local celebrity vibes. He's really well behaved and he listens to instructions like a pet would. And he actually sleeps in their bed with them every single night. Since he's a chimpanzee, he can do cool stuff. You know, he can like open doors using keys. He can get dressed. He waters the plants. They said that he liked to feed hay to the horses that they owned. And I bet Travis was really cute. Yeah, totally. He would sit at a table with them for dinner and they would let him have a little bit of wine in a wine glass. No, I don't love that. I don't love that. Well, I don't know if Travis loved it either. I don't know if he loved wine. You know what he loved was he fucking loved ice cream. And he would like memorize the schedule of the ice cream truck and run out of the house and be like, hello, definitely me. I'd like some ice cream. He watches TV. He uses the computer. He brushes his teeth. He's really into baseball. Um, And they let him eat like their diet. Actually, if they let him eat their diet, I'm realizing they had a really fancy diet. Some of the stuff they listed as things that Travis liked were Lind chocolate, filet mignon, and lobster. So I'm like, me too, Travis. I think we we like all the same things. You know what? They could have gotten me for a lot less money than Travis, and I probably wouldn't have caused this much trouble. He likes to do art. So they'll, like, give him art supplies and he'll make stuff and they'll, like, he's their kid. They, like, hang it on the fridge and sometimes he'll walk over to the fridge where his art is and he'll take down one of the things he drew and, like, look at it. You know, like, yeah, that was good that I I drew that. That was pretty. I'm proud of that one. Like, really sweet. And he's like a little kid. He's playing with stuffed animals and kid toys. You know, they get him a bunch of used kid toys. They got him a trapeze bar. In 1996... Leslie Mostel Paul says that that's hard to say. Leslie Mostel Paul says that Travis was sitting in a car with his, I guess we'll call them owners, parents, <laughs> um, in Stamford in a parking lot. She says that she tried to shake his hand after, you know, she's like sees a monkey, sees a chimpanzee and is like, oh, is he nice? And they're like, yeah, he is. You can say hi. And she reached her hand in to shake his hand and says that Travis bit her hand and that it drew blood. She says that they got upset about the incident and she didn't know what to do. So she went and got rabies shots because they were really slow in producing his medical records. You know, they kind of handled it, I guess. It was a little different vibes than when, like, a dog bites somebody. Mm. I think because it freaked everybody out, but also it felt like he was so much more human than dog. Mm -hmm. So when he does it, they're, like, slow in producing the medical records. She goes and gets a rabies shot and says that her impression of how Sandra reacted to this was less oh my God, this is a disaster, and more, well, this is really going to be a pain in the neck. She reports the incident to the police and doesn't get follow-ups, but she felt like it was a really serious incident. I'm going to read this quote that she said, if it was a child, it could have ripped the hand off or an arm out of a socket. She's really troubled by this incident, but it doesn't seem like a lot comes of it. Then... As far as what's going on with this family, 
tragedy strikes when they lose their only child that they thought of as Travis's sibling, although they were human, to be clear, their child dies in a car accident in the year 2000. Oh, that's so sad. Sandra has a friend named Charla Nash, and she pays her $300 a week to do a bunch of kind of odd jobs for her company. She answers phones. She releases the towed cars. She cleans the cars out um, when they're going to junk after they've been totaled. Just sort of general stuff. But she also ends up kind of taking on almost the role of an auntie to Travis, which is to say she comes by and cleans his pen and gets new newspapers for his room. Um, There's like rubber matting down in his room. And she puts like the newspapers all on top of that. And she does some food shopping for him and brings him toys and stuff that she finds that's secondhand. When they asked Sandra about this, she's like, oh yeah, she, she used to make him rice pudding and she used to do bottle picking, which I think bottle picking is um when you go to people's recycling and pull the bottles to go get money on them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because she does bottle picking, she'll see stuff people are throwing out that what might be a good toy for Travis and she brings it over. Um, okay, let's move forward to the year 2003. This is what I wrote down. I called it the downtown incident. In October of 2013, they're in traffic, the Herald family with Travis in their car at a busy intersection, and a pedestrian throws an empty soda bottle at their car, and it goes through an open window and hits Travis while they're stopped. (gasps) Travis... It takes no time. It's a fucking second. He's pissed. He opens his car door and gets out and chases the man, but does not catch him. Police show up and they try to get Travis back in the car and they keep getting him back in. And Travis will like, it's like a game where they get him in one door and Travis will go to another door and just leave the car again. And he keeps just leaving the car and it causes kind of this, crazy issue where they feel like they don't have this large chimp under control. Yeah. It makes everyone pretty nervous. So it leads to the passing of a Connecticut law that prohibits people from keeping primates that weigh over 50 pounds. It's like this whole exotic pet permit law that gets passed like in reaction, I think, to this incident. The Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection, also known as the DEP, doesn't actually enforce this law with the Heralds because they already... They're like grandfathered in. Yes. But you should know, Travis is enormous. He's like over 200 pounds. So he would definitely have fallen under this new law's umbrella of you can't own something, this uh, animal this large because it makes us nervous. We can't control them. Sandra's husband, Jerome, dies from cancer a year after this incident in 2004. So now it's just Sandra has lost her child. She's lost her husband. Travis is her everything. And he's sort of, they take baths together. They sleep in the same bed. He brushes her hair at night. If she leaves the house, he also gets really upset. And he gives her like a kiss when she leaves. They have a pretty unusual human to animal relationship and they're both Mm -hmm. really reliant on each other but outside experts say that this would have been really confusing for an animal right 
It sounds confusing to me. Also, not at all confusing and very human in many ways. But right. And the executive director of the prime of the the fuck (laughs) the executive director of primarily primates, which is a sanctuary for chimpanzees in Texas, says he was probably very bonded with her. I can kind of see it in his eyes. This is his surrogate mother. Mm-hmm. Travis is still obviously not a human being and an animal, and he wears enormous diapers and he can't be potty trained. You know, there are limits. They also keep him in a locked enclosure in the back of the house. And when guests come, he's put in that enclosure. He's not allowed to just sort of run free because they have seen that there are elements of aggression that he has. Well, and unpredictability is, I think, the bigger thing. We just don't really... He is an animal, and he's shown himself to be one. That's not, you know... Shouldn't Mm -hmm. be news to anybody, but I feel like it's important to say. Because when you're giving um, a chimpanzee a glass of wine, and he's brushing your hair before you go to bed, there are all these lines being crossed, and it's confusing. All right. In 2009, in February... Travis sits down to have his lunch. It's fish and chips and some tea. And he's acting kind of agitated. So Sandra puts a little Xanax in his tea. He also takes medication for Lyme's disease. But he's having an off day. So I think her goal is to calm him down. I think it's important to say that Xanax is a little like when they tell you not to give your kids Benadryl because it can have the opposite intended effect. It can amp you up instead of settle you. I don't think Sandra necessarily knew that. But today he's being a little naughty, a little unpredictable. He takes the house keys and he lets himself out and leaves. She's out there trying, Travis, get back here, trying to corral him back in. She can't get him to listen to her. She calls Charla, Charla Nash, to come help her. Charla drives up to the house and has recently gotten a new haircut. So she looks different. Okay, she gets out of the car and she starts to move toward the house. She is holding a Tickle Me Elmo doll that in the past has been one of Travis's favorites. And she's waving this red doll around, sporting a new haircut. Travis flies into a rage and lunges at her. Sandra sees Travis doing this and is horrified. He's on top of Sharla, attacking her. So Sandra rushes to Sharla's aid. She starts hitting Travis with a shovel. He will not let up. She runs into her house, grabs a butcher knife, runs back out to Travis, and starts stabbing Travis with a butcher knife three times her son she later said for me to do something like that put a knife in him it was like putting one in myself he turned around and looked at her and she said it was like he looked at her like mom what did you do and he's super confused but he also keeps going at charla there is blood everywhere So Sandra realizes she can't get him off Charlotte. She gets in her car, locks the doors, and calls 911. This 911 call is beyond disturbing. I listen to it. It's horrifying. Don't listen to it. I recommend you to please not listen to it. 
Sandra is beside herself on the phone in a total and complete frenzy, does not know what to do. It, she feels completely helpless. She is yelling, oh, my God, he ripped her face off. He's eating her. And you can hear Travis, like, crying and kind of, like, making barking, yelling oh monkey God. sounds in the background. She keeps oh crying into the phone. She oh is yelling God. at them. You need to get here and shoot him. Shoot him. Kill him. You have to kill him. He killed her. You have to kill him. She's just saying it over and over again, crying so hard. Officer Chiafari is on duty at this point. He took the Stanford police test with a friend and happened to pass and joined the department in 1985. I don't feel like he's necessarily like in it. The guy you want on call? Well, he's like a really sweet outdoorsy guy that loves animals. He's not like a hardened cop that sees a lot of crazy things. He had only once before fired his gun in the line of duty and it was to kill a deer that had already been struck by a vehicle. So like to put it out of its misery. He started his shift that day at 3 p.m. He stopped at a Starbucks and on the radio he hears a monkey's attacking somebody. And he's like kind of laughing because he's like, that's crazy. But then he gets a code three, which is like, no, this is super serious. Drop everything and fucking get there. And the dispatcher sounds really panicked. So he's driving over and in his head he's like, whoa, I know the address and and a monkey. Oh, my God, this is Travis. Because like I told you, the people in the town know Travis. Obviously, if a chimp lives in your town and is going to the grocery store, you know. You know him. Yeah. He pulls up to the house and sees a pile of clothes in the driveway and then is like, oh, my God, it's not a pile of clothes. It's a person. And he said the person looked like they had been completely ripped apart and there was so much blood coming out of them. He was sure that they were dead and that they had bled out. She was alive. He parks um, on one side of Sharla and the other officer parks on the other, almost like their cars are flanking her, maybe to I, maybe to, like shield her from further attack. And they see Travis in a frenzy jumping up and down on the porch of the house. And the emergency medical team has been called and is there, but they cannot get out of their vehicles and go to Sharla because Travis is there. And it's like no one can approach him obviously. Travis goes up to Chiafari's window and starts banging on it. It's so scary. He says that Travis whacks off the side view mirror off his car and he said it was like it was butter. Like just bloop. Travis returns to the porch then walks around to the other side of Chiafari's car, the passenger door, door to get in. and opens the door. He realizes at that point it has it's unlocked and he pulls it open and he says they're just face to face looking at each other, eye contact, and Travis is covered in blood. Chiafari has nowhere to no go. Choice. He's totally cornered. Charles and at this point Travis shows his teeth and starts like snarling and he shoots him he shoots Travis four times and he says he thought his gun misfired because Travis has little to no reaction and then stumbles away 
Once Travis leaves the scene, the paramedics rush out to Sharla. And he says that at this point, he sees that she has no face and no hands and that there are fingers and thumbs on the ground. He is in his head praying that she is not conscious, but then she reaches out for him with one of her stumps at his like officers at the officer's leg. Oh my God. The detective I hate on this story so much, Quinn. It's so, so scary. So sad. So the detective estimates that the attack on her lasted 12 minutes. Finally, they find Travis. Oh my God. He's inside. He's dead. He's next to his cage. He went into his room and died there. They rush Charlotte Nash to the hospital. She has such absolutely insane injuries. She's lost her hands, nose, eyes, lips. She has a bunch of brain tissue injuries. They put her into surgery right away for more than seven hours. And there's four teams of doctors working on her, trying to stabilize her. She's transferred to critical condition at 72 hours, and there's more surgery. The hospital has to provide counseling to the staff members who treated her because of how bad her wounds were. The doctors are able to reattach her jaw, but she will be blind for the rest of her life. She survives? She survives. (gasps) Oh my God. She needs a full face transplant and they perform it and it works, but her they also give her um, hand transplants and the hands don't, uh, her body rejects the hands. Her family has to start a trust fund to raise money to pay the most insane medical bills you could possibly imagine in your life. And for the first time in November of 2009, she appears in public and shows her face on the Oprah Winfrey show. God. Oh my God. How does she look? Now she's had a full face transplant. She is blind, but she has eyes. It. Have you ever seen someone with a face transplant? It looks yes. like someone with a face transplant. It's not like she's not going to ever look like nothing happened. Like, right. And right. she can't see and she has no hands. So her entire life has been really greatly impacted by this. I, I watched a lot of interviews with her, an interview with like Meredith... Is her name Meredith? Fiera. Yeah. Who like loved her and was so sort of taken with her um, because of her amazingly positive attitude and the way that she's like, I'm still alive. And so she's living her life and she's trying to do all these things. (sighs) They, in the aftermath of this, they had to take Travis, his head and take him to take it to go get rabies tested and they take the body to the University of Connecticut for a I don't know what a necropsy is is that a necropsy it's like an autopsy but for an animal okay autopsy is for a body okay so they go take his body to get a necrop a necropsy am I saying necropsy okay a necropsy is what I would say so they test his head for rabies negative but they found the Xanax in his system um, they cremate him at the All Pet Cemetery in Stamford, and 
they think that the Xanax could have been part of what exacerbated his aggression. It can like cause, almost gave him mania. Well, it can cause hallucination, aggression, rage, and mania even in humans sometimes. It can have right. what they call a paradoxical reaction, like I said. So it's like we thought that we were the giving opposite. him Xanax to calm him down and it might have made him the opposite. Um, he was 14 years old when he was killed. There's a lot. I mean, we think that no one knows what happened with Travis, but because he had this unusual relationship with Sandra, it might have been that someone showed up on the scene that he didn't recognize Charlotte because of the haircut and thought that he was protecting Sandra from an outsider coming onto their turf because she drove up into their driveway and approached them. The real truth is we'll never know what was going on in his head or what was going on. But the fact that he showed aggressive behavior previously and is not they've seen that he has a hard time being controlled it's like wow wow so in the aftermath charlotte nash's family filed a 50 million dollar lawsuit against sandra um and a judge froze her assets which were valued at 10 million other defendants included Connecticut Department of Environmental Protection, the city of Stanford, and the veterinarian who prescribed the Xanax to Travis. Travis. So, I mean, honestly, it sounds like Charla's case is just like, I bet the the medical cost. I mean, the fact that she's alive is a true miracle. The cost of her medical procedures have to be astronomical as well. Yeah, yeah, astronomical. I mean... It's it's like it's hard. It's such a sad story for everybody. Sandra was obviously had lost her whole family and was very close to Travis and said she felt completely hollow after he was gone. She died shortly afterwards in 2010 of an aneurysm at 72. Um, And her attorney said, I think she died from heartbreak. Yeah, this was just too much. Jesus Christ, that's the, insane. So the Nashes reach a settlement with her estate and they get $4 million And the attempt to sue the state of Connecticut doesn't work. Um, and there's been appeals. I mean, it's, it's all very upsetting. The attack provoked all this discussion on, obviously, keeping animals as pets, which I know is a really a, a current thing that we're in the wake of Tiger King, right? A lot of people are talking about this. Oh, my God. So in January of 2009, the Captive Primate Safety Act was introduced, which adds monkeys, great apes, and lemurs to the list of prohibited wildlife species, which had been like, I think, crocodiles and snakes. I'm not really sure. Um, But basically, they're like, you can't purchase these. And they voted... 300, the House voted 323 to 95 in favor of the bill. So there's 95 people that are like, hey, let us have our exotic well, animals. There's 95 people that are like, don't tell me what to do. Don't sure. let the government have a say in what I bring into my life. But it sounds like that passed. So it's not, um, I don't think you're allowed to have a 200 chimpanzee as a pet anymore for those that were interested. I'm sure for those that were interested upon hearing this story, you might, might change your mind. Think twice about that. I also want to say that one of the New York 
Times articles focused on the experience of that officer. And he, after that day of work, had to go home to a wife and three kids and was completely blown apart by PTSD. Like, he was so traumatized by this and talked about how he can't wear a red shirt anymore because it reminds him of blood. And all these news outlets were asking him, you know, he's the guy that shot Travis. Like, what happened? What were you thinking? This, this, this. And then animal rights people coming at him. Why didn't you wait for a stun gun to arrive on the scene? And he said, I couldn't say to him, Did Travis, you hear the let's story? wait for a stun gun. Did um, you hear the story where he opened the door and shook? Like, did you hear the story? Not only that, but I think he probably saved Charlotte Nash's life because... Once he shot Travis and Travis had to flee the scene, only then was the paramedics able to approach her. And their fast approach and taking her to the hospital and going into those hours of surgery was what saved her life. She was going to bleed out. He says that he is plagued by daydreams and nightmares of faceless women. Oh, my God. And that it's just plagued him. Oh, my God. Like, he was talking about walking around Disney with his kids and that he had to, like, go take a break because he kept seeing, like, faceless women. He has had (sighs) depression and anxiety that he's had to have treated since this incident. And what happened to him led to further legislation in 2010 that would cover compensation for these police officers if they have mental or emotional impairment after using no very specifically after using justifiable deadly force to kill an animal very specific like if you have to kill an animal in the line of duty and you're suffering um because of that mentally we need to help you pay for any services that you receive Interesting clarification. Yeah. I also just wanted to say that this officer said that he considers Travis a victim. He should have been in the jungle where he's supposed to be, not in a house drinking wine and taking Xanax. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. So I just, um, that's the story of Travis. It's horrific and so insane. Jesus. Um, But she's alive today and she's rocking it. Wow, Charla Nash, you're an icon. I guess on that note, we'll do a word from our sponsors. Sure. We know you're here because you like listening to people tell stories. We have something super exciting to share with you. It is not a podcast. It is a musical novella called Love in Times of War. It's a beautiful story set to music. It is a 28-cut concept album with 14 spoken word narrations and 14 instrumentals that complement and evolve the story and you can listen to it on Spotify. You can listen to it on Apple Music. You can buy the album. It is written and narrated by Beck Norman. The music is composed by James Keith Norman. It's a story of a pregnant young woman who's lost her lover in a war, and she sets out to raise her child until history repeats itself. It's engaging. It's impactful. It's also featuring Stephen Fry, which is pretty darn cool. But please go listen to Love in Times of War. It's a beautiful story, such a gorgeous music, and you won't regret it. Hey, we're back. Or are we? Or are we talking from the past? Because we're super safe with Birdie. (laughs) Birdie, you guys, Birdie envisions a world where women can be safe, where they can uh, walk down the street and just uh, 
do their thing, not really worry about... Uh, Can I tell you something actually about Birdie? I was in Chicago with a friend and she had a really cute purple Birdie. They didn't have that color when I bought mine or Mm -hmm. my mom bought me mine for Christmas. It was this really cute lavender Birdie. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Where'd you get it? She goes, my sister gave it to me. She goes, she had a really scary experience. This guy was fucking following her from the train, her sister. And she kept walking and this guy was still fucking following her. And she went up to this guy who was in her neighborhood who was, like, putting trash out. And she went up to him and she was like, can I please stand by you? There's a man following me. He was like, yes, come this way. After that happened to her, she bought a birdie. And she bought one for her sister. And she bought one for her whole family. That's so smart. Get a birdie for yourself. Get a birdie for your friend. Get a birdie for your daughter. And get a birdie for your son. I think, like, everybody can have a birdie. I carry mine on my bike so that if something happens, I just pull it. So smart. It and sets off a strobe light. It has like a really loud noise. It's just going to, even if you never use it, which hopefully you are never going to use it, um, except at a weird sound rave or something. But it totally, if, I hope you don't have to use it, but you're going to feel better if you have it. So get one today and use the promo code TDC10. You get 10% off. It's a no brainer. We love you. Stay safe and um, bye, Birdie. And now we're totally back again. Carrie has a story and then it's the end. Um, I, uh, I got this information from New York Times. I'm still reeling from that other story. My story is not any more positive. So, in fact, it's really bad as well. So, Here sorry we about that, folks. You know what? You didn't come here for the positive content. And if you did... It was the first 10 minutes. And if you did, Skip. it was the wrong place to come. <laughs> New York Times. All that's interesting. Wikipedia. This is the Moore's murders. It's the 1960s. Between 1963 and 1965, five children are reported missing. They are Edward Evans, who is 17, Leslie Ann Downer, who is 10 years old, John Kilbride, 12, Pauline Reed, 16, and Keith Bennett, 12. The police are scratching the heads. They don't know where these kids are. They don't know where to find them. This man, David Smith, comes forward to tell the police that his sister-in-law's boyfriend murdered Edward Evans, who is 17. He saw him do it. To be clear, his sister-in-law is this woman, Mira Hindley, and her boyfriend is Ian Brady. A little bit about them. Ian is a 27-year-old stock clerk with a pompadour, like a little bouffant of his hair okay and his girlfriend mira henley is 23 years old she's a typist with dyed blonde hair here's what's confusing the mixture of what happened is like ian's story and david's story david comes to the police and is like listen i saw my sister-in-law mira's boyfriend ian kill edward evans here's what apparently happened David, the guy who reported to the police, came to Ian and said he was he owed money to his landlord, so he was in need of some money for rent. He then suggested that they do this thing called, quote, rolling a queer, which is to find someone, which is a hate crime, which is to find a gay man, target them, rob them, and beat them. So Ian claims that they two of them drove to Manchester to a train station. They saw Edward Evans, 17 years old at the train station, lured him to Ian's house. They tried to rob him. He fought back. Ian claims David hit Edward. And a scuffle happened. An axe was had. He was beaten. He was killed. 
Now, what David claims happened is that he was in the kitchen alone at their home. He heard a blood-curdling loud scream. When he walked into the living room, he sees Edward alive, half on the couch, half off, in a daze, Ian yelling at him to stop shouting. He keeps screaming. He picks up a hatchet. He hits him until he stops screaming, but he's still alive. Ian covers Edward's Edward's head with a cushion and ties a cord around his neck, and he strangles him. Whoa, this is a lot. This is so much. So I know that was confusing. I started with sort of Ian's account, which it's saying that David had instigated the incident. And I ended with David's account, which seems probable that 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 is what has happened. And I will get into the reasons why in a minute. Ian, according to David, then looks to Mira, his girlfriend, and says, that's it. It's the messiest yet. It's the messiest yet? Yes. Ooh. So David is there, sees this all happening, and is like, I gotta get out of here. So he helps them clean the body and store it and he gets out of the house and as and according to his tales he tries to just get out of there alive david goes home tells his wife who is mira's younger sister what happened and they immediately call the police that's why i believe that what david said yeah. and not what ian said no totally the couple are arrested And of course, they claim they are innocent. David informs the police that at the train station that they that that apparently that's where they met Edward, that there is a suitcase that has a lot of evidence in the suitcase. They find pictures of another victim, which I will get to in disturbing positions. This victim is 10 years old. They find a tape recording of her assault and murder. Then, at their home, at Mira's home, they find a notebook with one of the victim's names on the pages. This is not Edward. This is one of the other missing children. They find photos of the couple at Saddleworth Moor in northwestern England, where three bodies had been found of these missing children. The two of them were arrested and charged with the murders of three because they had three bodies. A year after Parliament abolished capital punishment, so there's no death penalty. And the worst these two could get was life imprisonment. Mira claims that her role was to just abduct the victims, but she didn't take part in the murders or assaults. She would pick up the victims asking them if they need a ride and on certain occasions she'd say hey i lost a glove can you help me look or she would take them to an isolated place and then ian would go through with the attack just for the fuck of it she's claimed later on in life that ian her boyfriend yeah i was gonna because this is like the homanka thing like carla homanka is that her name the, the, the Ken and Barbie killers, basically that like... The two, we should cover that case, by the way, for sure. two but, fucked up people that do murders together, and then the woman turns around after they get caught and goes, well, I was always so scared of him, and he made me do it, and 
he was abusive and yeah i just don't fucking buy it in these particular cases yeah she says that he beat her he blackmailed her and threatened to kill her family if she didn't cooperate now you know it's you know it with women it's never with women it's never middle of the road they just did it it's always like either they were a victim or they were the mastermind it's like it's very clearly like what does that say about us (laughs) that we're the victim or the mastermind or that like in some ways we can either like it's very rare um to be average Mm -hmm. (laughs) which i'm happy to feel that i am i'm totally average okay so (laughs) i want to go through the other victims because i want them to have their say in what happened to them now keep in mind the the two of them were only charged for three murders because there were only three bodies that were found one body that was found was Leslie Ann Downey. Leslie Ann Downey was 10 years old. She was kidnapped from a fairground in December 1964. Her death was the most notorious because it was what was described in the trial. And the reason it was so detailed in the trial is because the photos in the suitcase and the tape was of her death. She is 10 years I can't, old. I can't. I can't. There's pictures of her in the suitcase. There's a book on torture in the suitcase. The photos are incredibly disturbing, and I will not detail them, but they're bad. There's also a tape recording that the couple made of her murder. The jury at the trial heard this tape. It is a 13-minute long tape. In it, you hear both Ian and Mira's voices. You hear 10-year-old Leslie calling for her mom and asking God for help. Oh, my God. Her body was found on Saddleworth Moor, October 1965, 10 months after she disappeared. Mira claims she drew... I just get so, like, fucked up by that. Maybe, I think it's just the mom thing that, like, to be a mom and hear that and to think, like, not that anyone's not moved by that, but... The idea that you're the mom and you're like, my kid is calling for me and I can't help them. It's like so sad. God, that fucks me up. I'm sorry, Quint. That's okay. I'm just like, oh, like, I hope that I hope those parents did not go to that trial. (laughs) Ugh. John Kilbride, he's 12 years old. He disappears from a market. Mira offers him a ride home. She instead goes to the moor where Ian sexually assaults him and strangles him with a piece of string in November 1963. He's found near Leslie in October 1965. Pauline Reed, she was on the way to a disco in 1963. She's abducted, murdered, and she's found also in Saddleworth Moor, where um, they find her body two decades later, still in her dress and her blue coat. Keith Bennett, in June of 1964, he's on his way to his grandma's house. Mira asks him for help loading boxes into her car. He then is murdered. The couple confessed to the murder in 1985, so years after their trial. And in 1986, Keith's mom asked the judge for Mira to help locate his body. A hundred police officers helped, but his body was never found. 
So like I said at the trial, they were charged for only two murders. I'm sorry, they were charged for three murders because since there were no bodies found of the other two, they couldn't find it. So I'll tell you, they were charged for the murders of John Kilbride, Leslie Ann Downey, and Edward Evans. They did not confess to the other two murders until decades later, which to me feels like, was there remorse? Like, if if she really was a victim of his control, where was her admission of guilt? Where was her come up? At, you know what I mean? That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, my life could be on... There's nothing... You don't torture a 10-year-old child begging to see their mom and then say someone made you do it. Because if you're a human being that can feel emotions, nothing in the world would get you to do that thing. Totally. There's not a thing. Totally. So, fuck her. Psychologists at the trial said they had no capacity for empathy that Nero was known in Britain as the most evil woman in Britain. Why was she known as that? That's such a weird thing to say. It's a very weird thing to say, but the crimes are exceptionally horrifying. No, I know, but like being like she was known, it makes it sound like before any of it happened, they were like, ah, Mira, the most evil woman in London. And I'm like, what? Evil woman. She was just like running around like uh, being a busybody or something. Yeah, well, a little bit about her, and I and I focus on her only because she's the one who later sort of says that she's a changed woman, which I think makes her pass. Like, I mean, spoiler alert, the two of them are found guilty after two hours of deliberation of the jury. Like, yeah, it takes no time to find them guilty. They're both sentenced to um, an entire life sentence and a whole life tariff, which I guess is like a life sentence could be like 25 years or determined by... The judge, and I think in this case, they kind of were like, just keep them in there forever. Ian later was diagnosed as a psychopath and was later put into a high security psychiatric hospital, and he never tried to get out. Mira is is the only one that sort of maintains a sense of innocence because how she says, you know, I was controlled or manipulated. No. Nope. So she grew up in a repressive, poor home. Her father beat her and apparently taught her violence was the only answer. Um at 18, she meets Ian. She becomes obsessed with him. On their first date, he takes her to a movie on the Nuremberg Trials. He's obsessed with Nazi criminals. They would, like, take breaks from lunch and read about the horrible things Nazis did. She dyed her hair blonde to look more Aryan. Um, so, like, ugh. So they're, gar- just, they're garbage people. I they're mean, they're garbage just garbage people. people doing garbage things. It is so annoying that people like that get to have any chance at all on the planet. It is. And what's really horrifying is they found each other. Mm. And she was able to use, I think probably why she was considered the most evil woman in Britain is because she's, she abducted them knowing what was going to happen. I mean, she used her feminine wiles. She used, you know, that women are seen as less threatening or harmful people to lure these kids into a situation where she knew they wouldn't come out of it. And she asked them for help. All these little kids thought they were helping someone. Mm-hmm. Fuck that. 
At the sentencing, though, the judge laid more blame on Ian than at Mira. He said, though I believe that Brady is wicked beyond belief without hope of redemption, I cannot feel the same as necessarily true of Hindley once she is removed from his influence. They both get a life sentence. Her case comes up for parole a couple of times, and there was support um, that she was a changed person. You know the old adage, she goes and gets her university degree. Mm -hmm, She mm -hmm. cuts off contact with Ian, and she goes to church. Um, in In 1998, so 30 years after she's in jail, she says, I was under duress and abuse before the offenses, after, during them and all the time I was with him. He used to threaten me and rape me and whip me and cane me. He threatened to kill my family. He dominated me completely. She also says that she had remorse when Pauline read death. She saw an ad that her parents placed in the ad and when she saw it, she started shaking and crying when she saw it. Which I guess shows remorse. But again, you had two other victims you didn't cop to until two decades later. How fucking changed were you? You were already going to get the life sentence. You couldn't get the death penalty. It was abolished. It wasn't even on the fucking table. So what did you have to lose? Her advocate in the parole hearing said the most insane thing I think I've ever heard, which is she may have done evil things, but which one of us haven't? No, 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 no. Get a grip. I mean, fucking get a grip. Fuck you. Fuck that. That's insane. That's the most insane underplaying that's the dumbest of the defense murder. i've ever heard yeah, the abduction the Killed abduction a bunch of kids, and tortured a bunch yeah, of kids. however there are reports from people in prison from at least one person in prison that was like no she's fucking evil and cunning and the mother of one of the victims even said if she was released she would murder her herself yeah amen don't bl- don't blame her There was also a report from a psychological assessment at the time, at the time of the trial, saying that she was worse than Ian. She was never released, but fought hard to be so, saying, I know I could be out one week before someone assassinated, but at least I would have had a week of freedom. You know who never had a week of freedom? Yeah. Her fucking victims. Mm -hmm. You know who will never have a chance to have another dinner at their family? Her fucking victims. In 2002, she died. In 2017, Ian died. But again, he never fought to be paroled. He was diagnosed as a psychopath. In fact, he wished to die. He never wished to be released. He asked to die multiple times. He died at the age of 79 in Liverpool, England. And all of this takes place in northeastern England around the Manchester area. And that's the story of the Moors murders. Well, I hated that story. I know you did. I'm sorry. Does this go like, this is one of our more disturbing episodes on whole, don't you think? I think so. There was very little, um, I think too, as you and I are quite tired. And sweaty. Are you sweaty? No, not last time. Remember how sweaty I was uh-huh. last time? I'm oh, not. I'm really sweaty this time. And it's weird. I like just, I think because I'm sweaty, you must be also. <laughs> Because it, it feels like, we're, I mean, I know my ears are really hot because I have two headphones in on my ears, but I'm not, I mean. You should just I, do what I do and take them out when you record. I don't because I'm trying to protect against sound. No, Carrie, I meant like leave the whole thing unplugged like right. I did at the I beginning. I should do that like you did at the beginning. You know, I'm sorry, that case is still with me. I 
I look back at my research and I see there's so much research I did on Mira. It had a lot of information on her. And I do think it's an interesting conversation. Is it because she sought forgiveness that there's all this information on her? And in Ian, I, I got a lot of this information from the New York Times article, which was basically listing that Ian had died in 2017 and then listed the full case and talked extensively about Mira about Mira. I think it's because it's an aberration aberration. Am I saying that right? Sure. I think it's because it's a rarity to have a young female murder children. Like you don't see that as often. You do see men and do I it more. Do want to be clear? She did not act alone. She Ian Brady tortured them as well. Like it's not. I I mean I think it's. But I'm a, saying that you see men doing right. There's more. Um, the fact that she was involved at all is a is an anomaly, mm-hmm. and it's not. So I think people are like, "What happened? What made you like this? Who are you? What's the story? Right. That's so weird." And people probably dive into her psychology a good deal more than his, would be my assumption. Totally. It's really bad. You guys, we're sorry about this episode. We're so Um, sorry. I'm so sorry. Hey, Quinn, I want to apologize to you because you're you're editing it right now, and I'm I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. You're apologizing to the future me that has to listen to it twice? Yeah. And Carrie, while you're in there, because you're listening to it too, I mean... I don't need to apologize to myself, but like, Carrie, do better. No, tell yourself something nice. Because you're already having a hard time. You're already listening to this. You should be like, Carrie, it gets better. Carrie, you look great. Carrie, how about those new jeans? Great cut. Your booty (laughs) looks bootylicious. On point. Buy yourself a drink. That was a hard one. That was a hard one. That was a hard one. I can't have COVID. Oh, man, I'm really glad I get to go have some alcohol in a beautiful place right now. Those are That's what I need. What time do you leave? Oh, you're not going to believe this. So in 20 minutes, I have to run an escape room for an hour. Then I have to shower and go straight to the city. You do it for the perks. Dear readers, we do it for the perks. We do it for the jerks. We do it because we lurks inside your house, spitting like a mouse. <laughs> because we got cheese breath. I wish I had cheese breath. That just made me really hungry. What are you going to eat? Some cheese? I don't think we have any. You know what? We have shredded cheese, but I always feel weird just doing the handfuls of it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. Kids love shredded cheese. Do you know they this? Do. The kids Koa love it. And kids are like, oh, it's my favorite. I'm like, what? they're like, doesn't shredded cheese taste better than other cheese? I'm like wondering what that's about. Good, good query. Did I tell you about um, what happens at Koa's school for birthdays? No, I think you have. It's like veggie straws. No, no, let me tell you. When it's a kid's birthday, first of all, you know, Cole kind of has a speech impediment in the way he says his teacher, whose name is Barbara, he says, Miss Blah Blah. Have you ever noticed that? that? Yeah. So he says, Miss Blah Blah has the person whose birthday it is gets to walk around a globe and we all sing to them happy birthday while they walk. And then we all do a wish. If it is your birthday, mama, you get to choose what to wish for. But if it is not your birthday, Miss Blah Blah tells you what to wish for. And I said, what did she tell you to wish for? And he said, peace. And I go, oh, okay. And he goes, but mama. And I go, yeah. And he gave me the biggest smile and thumbs up and went, I cheated. 
was like, <laughs> what? I was like, what? And he goes, I cheated. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, you don't have to say your wish out loud. So you can just make a different wish in your head if you don't tell. And I said, so you didn't wish for peace? And he goes, nope. And I was like, what'd you wish for? And he goes, that all my dreams would come true. <laughs> wait a minute, wait it's a, a minute. So, wish. so they're just wishing on a globe? This hippie like dippy Michigas that you're sending by. your... A year gone by. You walk around oh, the globe. Oh, is that why? I think it's a symbol. That's what I assume. I... That's smarter than me. I was like, what the fuck is she you're doing? You're like a globe. This hippie Michigas you got your kid doing is all fakakt. So in the name of uh, in the name of us getting out of here and everyone feeling not this shitty, um, I hope everybody's dreams come true. Wait, every no, everybody, Quinn and I are gonna tell you what to wish for. And it's it's fucking <laughs> peace and a Patreon subscription. Patreon subscription. Peace on earth and a Patreon subscription. I hate you. Uh-huh.